Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Carl Osipov from Counterfactual. Hi, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Ian. Thank you for hosting me. So before we start talking about getting into serverless and machine learning and how the two sort of complement each other, can you maybe just tell the audience a bit about yourself, uh, your experiences leading up to this point and about the counterfactual as well? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I started with uh, information technology industry back in 2001. So uh, way over 15 years now. And um, uh, in terms of the industry, I have been working as a software engineer. And in particular, I have focused uh, much of my engineering career on distributed systems. And in particular, these were distributed systems that processed uh, massive amounts of data for the time uh, using technologies like Hadoop originally. And more recently, I have been focusing more on building uh, systems, and in particular machine learning systems, uh, that use cloud-based technologies and use serverless technologies. So that's more of my uh, industry expertise. Uh, in parallel with that, uh, I managed to get um, both my undergraduate and graduate degrees uh, in computer science. Uh, both of them have focused on different aspects of machine learning. Uh, I did my undergraduate with concentration in artificial intelligence. And then more recently, I went back to school and uh, uh, picked up a master's degree. Uh, focusing on machine learning in particular. So another way that I like to think of myself is uh, uh, as an applied computer scientist who escaped academia. And uh, uh, over my career, I spent most of uh, the industry work at IBM, uh, IBM Software, and more recently uh, helping IBM focus on technologies like Docker and uh, OpenWhisk for serverless. And after that, I spent about two years uh, at Google and uh, at Google, I really learned a lot uh, about applied machine learning, building machine learning systems. And more recently, I uh, co-founded Counterfactual.ai uh, with a goal to uh, help companies uh, deploy machine learning solutions and do it in a way that um, minimizes the operational costs of machine learning systems uh, by leveraging serverless. So right now, I'm a CTO at Counterfactual.ai. So can you maybe tell us a bit about uh, Counterfactual and uh, what you guys actually do in the sort of day-to-day -day basis? Because I know you said that you guys focus on the training, but also working on the projects with clients to deliver, uh, apply the machine learning to their to achieve some business goals at the customers, right? At Counterfactual, we're a small consultancy, so we can only focus on a few things. Uh, so really, we only do uh, three things. We do consulting, training, and uh, customer-driven research. Now, uh, you're specifically asking about the consulting uh, side of the uh, company. And from the consulting standpoint, uh, what we really do, if you try to uh, put it into a day-in-a-life day in scenario, uh, we come into an environment where you have teams uh, built from uh, very different categories of uh, engineers. So I'm seeing customers try to build out teams of data scientists and try to get those teams working together with uh, mobile app developers or with uh, web developers. And uh, uh, when I come into a conversation with a company like that, much of what I do is about translating the conversations of data scientists and what data scientists are trying to do uh, into the language that uh, somebody who is developing a mobile application 
can understand and appreciate and uh, help uh, the company get these disparate teams to row in, in the same direction, row towards the same uh, set of uh, business objectives, as you suggested. And usually what this means is uh, how can a company deploy uh, a data science model or machine learning model into production in a way that uh, increases customer satisfaction, increases net promoter score objectives for a particular company's web application, for example, or a mobile application. Yeah, so with machine learning, what I found is that uh, there's a lot of uh, buzzwords and uh, you know things out, well, like a lot of hype out there. Uh, a lot of things getting branded with uh, machine learning, with AI, but a lot of time they're just really simple, you know, you know code that's uh, running some uh, lookup. Um, can you maybe uh, give us some concrete examples of a project that you've delivered with customers that has some tangible increase in some business KPI? Absolutely. So uh, let me describe a project that actually inspired a book that I'm working on. So uh, I have um, uh, launched a book from uh, many publishers. The title of the book is uh, Serverless Machine Learning. And as part of that book, the reader actually goes for a project based on a project that uh, my company has done on uh, improving the ETA, the estimated time of arrival predictions for a food delivery company. Uh, so specifically, my company has worked with uh, this uh, organization that had an existing mobile app. And as part of that mobile app, uh, they were helping customers understand when their uh, food delivery would arrive. And uh, unexpectedly, this uh, use case became uh, more important now in this uh, post-COVID type uh, economic environment. And specifically, what the company was trying to achieve was to improve its metrics around uh, recommendations in the App Store and also uh, general customer satisfaction. Uh, so by helping this company deploy a serverless machine learning solution, we actually helped them improve their ETA predictions that translated over time into higher customer satisfaction with the mobile application, uh, as evidenced by the App Store ra uh, rankings, and also helped improve the uh, sentiment score of the comments in the uh, mobile app App Store as well. And this particular machine learning application uh, was serverless. So uh, if you want to talk about buzzwords, uh, definitely it may sound like a buzzword overdrive. Uh, but I think it's also valuable to understand what we mean when we marry words serverless and machine learning together. And, you know, this is something I'd be happy to discuss in more detail as well. That particular use case that does sound very, very uh, useful, especially nowadays. Uh, I mean, personally, I've ordered so many takeaways uh, in the last couple of months and quite a few times when the delivery times are off, uh, it was quite annoying that uh, you, you, know, you get yourself all ready for dinner and then the food doesn't come for another half an hour because of uh, a miscalculated uh, uh, ETA for the delivery time and things like that. So having better uh, ETA for the for, uh, for the delivery of your food does massively help those customer experience in this particular area. And for anyone who's interested in, the, in your book, uh, Manning has also given us uh, a forty percent discount code, uh, which you can find on the show notes. And there are also five free copies available as well. So uh, more details on how to get those uh, copies uh, is available in the show notes. So please contact me afterwards. And uh, you also talk about this, uh, you know, using serverless and machine learning you know, being this mashup of uh, buzzwords. Tell us a bit about why serverless, uh, you know, why is that a good fit with machine learning? 
Absolutely. So there's a well-known research paper that was published by a group of authors at Google. Uh, the lead author on that research paper is uh, named Scully. And uh, the paper is titled uh, Technical Debt in Machine Learning Systems. And one of the fi findings of that research paper is that machine learning systems that actually are put into production end up being only about 5% machine learning code, and the rest is uh, infrastructure. And guess what? If we're talking about a system that's built from 95% infrastructure, the next question is, what are the operational costs for that infrastructure? In, uh, in the book, I talk about this fact and I explain that serverless provides a very compelling alternative for organizations, teams that are putting machine learning systems in production. Instead of uh, trying to use technologies that require operational overhead to manage that 95% of infrastructure, that 95% that I call the machine learning platform code, companies can adopt the serverless approach. And the serverless approach allows companies to reduce the operational overhead of machine learning to close to zero. At the same time, it allows the companies to enable their data scientists, their machine learning practitioners, to really focus on that 5% that differentiates. So for example, uh, in case of the project that I described, the 5% code was the code that helped improve the uh, ETA and the delivery times. So this code is what really makes your machine learning system different. This is what really makes your machine learning system stand out in the marketplace. And serverless comes in because it allows uh, a practitioner to focus on creating that code and lead the operations of the rest of the machine learning platform to a public cloud or to a highly automated infrastructure. Yeah, and from my personal experience of working with uh, some data science teams as well, that uh, uh, sometimes these data scientists are, or data, en data science engineers are also not the best infrastructure engineers. Uh, so oftentimes they just have to spend a lot of time collaborating and figuring out what, uh, from, from, from the ops point of view, what does the data science team actually need and vice versa, and how does the data science team communicate with the infrastructure and ops team in terms of what their requirements are as well. Being able to offload all of this work to your cloud provider is massively, massively helpful and helps accelerate a lot of this process. So for this ETA improvement project, can we also just dive into and just you know, talk about uh, what does this system actually look like from the architecture side of things? I mean, what does your architecture look like for this particular project? Uh, for the ETA prediction, uh, we used a variety of uh, serverless capabilities from uh, AWS. Now, let me take a step back and be more precise about how do I define serverless. And then a little bit later, I'll talk about uh, more precisely what do I mean by machine learning and uh, machine learning code. If you think about serverless today, much of serverless is about uh, functions as a service. And uh, this definition of serverless made a lot of sense, uh, for example, back in uh, 2016 timeframe uh, when I was working on technologies like OpenWhisk. But even then, it was clear that that point of view on serverless is limiting. And uh, the limitations of 
functions as a service point of view and serverless is uh, obvious when you start thinking about situations when you begin to run out of capacity. So what happens if you write programs that require more memory than available in an instance, right, in the runtime environment that's actually executing your function? Or what happens when you run out of disk space? Or even what happens when you try to use a programming language that's different from the one that's supported by a cloud provider. And I think one of the uh, technologies that became more popular for serverless over time is technology like Docker that actually allows you to package your code together with an existing uh, middleware environment and simply focus on uh, invoking Docker containers uh, in cloud provider infrastructure. So obviously here, when I talk about serverless, I talk about serverless uh, in more recent definition of the word. So here, when I describe serverless uh, features from AWS, I don't just mean AWS lambdas. I also talk about serverless capabilities such as S-free object storage or serverless capabilities like the uh, glue service for building and processing data pipelines. So I think if you focus on serverless this way, it's more about helping the developer forget about servers that exist in the cloud provider environment and focus more on writing the code, whether that code is designed to run in a function as a service environment like AWS Lambda, or if that code is designed to run in a serverless environment like AWS Glue for data pipelines, or even if that code is processing data stored in a serverless object storage like S3. So given this description of service, uh, what we've done for the uh, ETA project was to uh, build out an infrastructure that covered both the training and inference in a machine learning pipeline. So if the listeners don't have the background in machine learning, uh, the analogy is that uh, compiling the code uh, is the same to machine learning model training as running the code at runtime, as doing inference in um, in machine learning system. So of course, this is an analogy, it only holds to uh, a limited extent, but what we've done for the ETA estimation was to make sure that we can support both training and inference in a machine learning system using serverless technologies. So to start answering a question about the infrastructure, the infrastructure started by uh, storing the data in S3 object storage. So the data itself for the project was in the format uh, known as CSV, comma-separated values. And uh, these CSV objects were processed using uh, AWS Glue. So AWS Glue allows you to implement uh, a data processing pipeline using a combination of Python and uh, C languages, uh, Python and SQL languages. And by combining these two languages together, it's possible to do common machine learning training tasks. For example, uh, take data, uh, prepare that data for processing, for example, eliminate missing data values, uh, clean up the data set, and then save that data into a dedicated object storage bucket so that data can be picked up by a machine learning model for training and then processed to actually train a machine learning model that can be used in in production, in deployment. So that's uh, the training part of the uh, project was done using AWS uh, SageMaker. 
And finally, once the model is trained, it was also put into, uh, into production. In that case, we used a different technology from AWS known as uh, uh, Fargate. So uh, the listeners of this podcast probably are familiar with Elastic Container Service, ECS on AWS. So Fargate uh, is a set of capabilities for ECS that provide a serverless experience for working with uh, uh, the ECS service. So the machine learning model was deployed inside of a Docker container managed by AW ECS. And uh, if you're wondering, did we use any Lambda at all? Uh, yes, we did use AWS Lambda. And I believe there's a, a very good use case for uh, functions as a service and AWS Lambda in particular, if you are working on a data science project. For many machine learning projects, it's important to establish uh, what are known as weak and strong baselines. Uh, For the listeners who have the software engineering background, uh, you can think of these baselines almost like mock implementations of uh, services or mock implementations of functions. They're designed not necessarily to give uh, production quality results. They're designed more for uh, confirming that a system can work in production. So for example, in machine learning, it's very common to do uh, a weak baseline for a machine learning model uh, using the approach that you described, Jan, a little bit earlier, where you have a very simple implementation. For example, in machine learning, a very simple implementation for uh, ETA prediction is uh, a model known as linear regression. So that would be something that I would describe as a weak baseline for a machine learning model. And with AWS, it's very easy to take this uh, weak baseline implemented as a linear regression model, package it inside of an AWS Lambda, put it in production, and have something running in a matter of uh, minutes. And of course, this is very valuable for a machine learning project because it reduces time to value. This gives an opportunity to the team of machine learning practitioners to put a very basic machine learning API into production sooner rather than later and immediately start collecting data on how well this weak baseline is working. And the idea for a machine learning project is to iterate over time. So improve the, over this weak baseline and measure the improvement. So for example, in case of uh, our project, we were able to take this weak baseline created using simple linear regression and then over time build a collection of models that uh, improved on that baseline by over 70%. Thank you, that's great. And uh, I think when you said uh, that uh, Docker is serverless, a few of the audience uh, might have just rolled their eyes. <laughs> and I think uh, there's definitely a distinction between what is uh, serverless and uh, is much bigger than just functions as service. And for a long time now, uh, I know quite a few of the people in the service community has been talking about serverless being a spectrum uh, from, you know, from a hosted uh, uh, functions as service solutions like Lambda all the way to other services uh, that you just use like S3, like DynamoDB. Uh, and uh, certainly, I think when you talk about Docker being serverless, um, I think one of the things that's, well, that you hear a lot nowadays is uh, things like oh, Kubernetes is serverless. And even though you have all this actual abstraction layer that you have to deal with and you still have to manage your own EC2 cluster under the hood, then it really doesn't give you a lot of the benefits that you're supposed to get from serverless in terms of not having to worry about actual underlying infrastructure and servers and being responsible for them. But I'm a big fan of Fargate and I do think Fargate is 
gives me a nice uh, nice way out when I run into limitations that I have with Lambda in terms of, uh, for, I guess, uh, for machine learning, the sort of space limit of 512 meg uh, is quite limiting. And I do see a lot of companies running their machine learning stuff on Fargate instead or using SageMaker. So with uh, the sort of current state of the technologies available to us, what do you, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges that it comes to uh, serverless and machine learning? Uh, great question. So I think you pointed out at the uh, exact nature of the debate. So I think uh, as a community that use serverless technology, uh, we need to become better at defining what exactly is serverless. I think defining serverless purely as functions as a service definitely limits the potential of this technology. Uh, I think we need to be uh, very clear about the distinction between serverless and platform as a service, because platform as a service uh, has a very strong technical foundation. Uh, in fact, platform as a service is one of the uh, formalized services models that have been defined by the um, NIST, National Institute of Standards, definition of cloud computing. So I think uh, for serverless to mature, it is important to come up with uh, a more precise and rigorous formalization definition of what is serverless. And uh, I agree with you. I think the crux of that definition has to come down to the operational side of serverless. I think what's great about serverless and uh, uh, what I think about this technology in terms of uh, the challenges that it opens up in the future is that if we think about serverless as, uh, as a way of improving the productivity of developers by automating as much of operations as possible, uh, we're going to be able to, as a community who use serverless, we're going to be able to uh, broaden the impact of serverless technologies on the world. Uh, it's important to recognize that serverless does not exist in the vacuum in the information technology industry. Uh, while some developers are adopting serverless, there are many startups that are using uh, a no-ops or uh, no-code approach to building applications and building systems. So one of the challenges that uh, we should be recognizing is that serverless has to compete against these uh, no-code, no-ops uh, type of implementations. On the other side of the spectrum, uh, another challenge is understanding technologies based on Kubernetes and uh, technologies you know, that you described that are based on Docker. So I think if we are able to define this value proposition of serverless for the developers, we're going to be able to grow the serverless community. We're going to be able to grow interest in serverless and also uh, help serverless adopt technologies like machine learning so that developers can build better, more popular, uh, more consumable systems for our users. And ultimately, I think that's where success for serverless is going to lie. Yeah, personally, actually... Well, I guess I've been fighting that battle of uh, definition for what does it mean you know, when you say serverless uh, for quite a while now. Uh, and personally, actually, getting, uh, I guess I'm feeling less and less. I actually feel that, uh, um, that the, the precise definition is not that important. Um, but what's important is to define, is understanding the value proposition, as you said, that we want from serverless technologies in that we should be able to just, you know, 
build applications and focusing on the area that on the code that actually differentiates our business as opposed to the underlying infrastructure because that's not what is that is what is important to our customers and for that i guess uh, you know, if you think about no code solutions and i do think those should also just be considered serverless because again i don't have to worry about managing servers and the you know, provisioning servers and orders and scaling them uh, all of that is not my responsibility i just focus on the things that are most important to my customers which it could be just they want to have a signing page it doesn't matter whether or not you know, i have to write some code to support that uh, it's just it's about the business value that we get uh well the business values that we we get from the technology rather than specific names or labels that you can put on those technologies that we use um so in this case uh, for for serverless and machine learning what do you think would be the next step next the logical step what's the next big thing to come out of this i think what's happening in the industry is that the companies are recognizing that uh there's a trap known as ML ops. So uh, when I say ML ops, that is standing for machine learning operations. And uh, the obvious analogy is to DevOps. And with ML ops, the problem for companies is that the machine learning practitioners that uh, teams and organizations have worked hard to hire and make productive, uh, these machine learning organizations, once they have deployed and machine learning system into production are falling into ML ops trap where they're spending uh, most of their time tending to the operations tasks instead of actually moving on to new machine learning projects. So this is about uh, these highly compensated machine learning practitioners who are working on uh, fairly routine operations problems instead of working on what they do best, which is building new machine learning models. And what I think the companies are uh, recognizing is that going forward to avoid the trap of ML ops, it's important to uh, shift machine learning practitioners and shift the, uh, the development of machine learning systems into a mode where serverless is more broadly adopted. And here, I think the premise of services that you, serverless that you just outlined, the ability to focus on the business value, is really what uh, is going to help the next generation of the machine learning systems uh, more successful in the marketplace. I want to take a moment to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, Chaos Search. Chaos Search is the fully managed log analytics platform that uses your Amazon S3 storage as the data store. Companies like Armor, HubSpot, AlertLogic, and many more are already using Chaos Search as a critical part of their infrastructure and processing terabytes of log data every day. Because Chaos Search uses your Amazon S3 storage, there is no moving data around, no data retention limits, and you can save up to 80% versus other methods of log analysis. So if you're sick and tired of your elk stack falling over or having your data retention squeezed by increasing costs, then visit chaosearch.io today and join the log analysis revolution. For the next wave of machine learning practitioners, what would be your advice to those engineers listening today that want to get into machine learning? What sort of skills should they be developing? What sort of things should they be learning? 
I find that the uh, many software developers today have already had some experience with uh, uh, machine learning at a very high level of understanding the basic uh, processes involved in training machine learning models from data and doing inference with trained machine learning models. I think the next step for those who have already understood those basics of uh, machine learning is to actually try it on your own. The first step is to pick up uh, what I describe as uh, single node machine learning frameworks, frameworks like scikit-learn that make it very easy to train uh, baseline machine learning models. The one example that I gave earlier is a machine learning model based on uh, linear regression or a logistic regression. Uh, actually try training one of these models using one of many available data sets from uh, sites like Kaggle and other open data set websites. Uh, and next, try to think about what it takes to put those machine learning models into production. And I think the best way to put a machine learning model into production is to use a serverless approach. And another thing that I've noticed uh, in the recent years, at least from AWS, is that they are publishing more and more, I guess, uh, what you might call packaged uh, machine learning services, like for recommendations uh, for products uh, or image recognition with Amazon uh, AWS recognition. Would you say that maybe in the future there will be more and more of these uh, managed services that provide machine learning to common business problems that there may be less and less need for you to, uh, for you to build custom-built machine learning models? That's a great question. I think uh, what's happening in the marketplace today is that many uh, services that are enabled by machine learning technology and some of the examples that you mentioned are services that provide custom recommendations. Uh, there are other services that provide uh, image uh, understanding, for example, recognizing objects and images, and services that extract information from textual descriptions, for example, parsing documents and extracting out fields like addresses. These services are becoming commoditized. They're available from many cloud vendors, uh, AWS, uh, Google Cloud, Azure. Uh, they're also available from some uh, smaller companies with additional capabilities. And these commoditized services, of course, are going to be uh, growing in popularity in the future. However, it's important to keep in mind that these are commodities, which means that if your company, if your organization is using those services, your competitors are using those services as well. And what makes companies successful with machine learning is the ability to create custom or differentiated machine learning systems. And to do that, you actually do need to use more complex services. You need to be able to train your machine learning models. Oftentimes, you need to be able to scale the process of that machine learning model training to uh, a cluster in, uh, in a cloud. So it is more than just using a service as an API. So ultimately, if you want to build uh, an organization or if you want to build a product that differentiates itself in machine learning, you're going to have to bite the bullet and uh, go through this more difficult route of creating your own machine learning model and putting your custom machine learning model into production. Right, gotcha. So you can use uh, machine learning as a differentiator, uh, make it part of your core uh, proposition in terms of how your product is better than your your competitors because 
they're using some generic uh, machine learning product off the shelf which does the job i guess even with uh, things like amazon recognition it kind of works i guess maybe like 70 percent of the time but uh, if you can have a more specialized uh, machine learning model that's sort of more tailored to your user base then potentially you can do a much better job than what you could do with some of these managed services absolutely Okay, and uh, from the standpoint of being able to uh, use some of these APIs, it's possible to build machine learning systems that combine both existing APIs from uh, services like AWS and also combine uh, proprietary machine learning models and actually uh, achieve better results by using the results, achieve better results by combining the outputs of both AWS APIs and your own machine learning models together. Okay, uh, how would that look like in that case? Uh, so suppose if I want to uh, do some phase recognition, uh, how would I be able to combine the results from both AWS recognition and my own proprietary machine learning model? Uh, face recognition is an interesting topic. Uh, more recently, it became controversial as uh, uh, AWS has restricted the uh, use of its uh, face recognition technology. So uh, it's a great question. And uh, I can tell you that Technologies, let's say, generically, that do object recognition uh, are very much driven by the context of the business application. So if you think about processing image data, one of the key considerations for that kind of data is the latency of processing. So for example, if you are deploying machine learning models that are recognizing Images in uh, images and recognizing objects like faces, or uh, maybe recognizing uh, some other types of uh, uh, objects, let's say animals, or they're recognizing vehicles. Uh, it's important to understand whether that application is deployed in an embedded environment, or if it's deployed in an environment where it's actually running, let's say, in a cloud, and where the latency isn't as much of a consideration. A lot of production deployments for uh, image understanding and for doing object recognition actually require very low latency. Uh, think on the order of single milliseconds to low uh, tens of millisecond latency uh, for processing and recognition. Uh, if you're trying to do that in, in a very high throughput environment, cloud oftentimes is uh, out of the question. But assuming if you do have an application where it is okay to do, uh, let's say, image understanding and object uh, recognition in uh, uh, image data in the cloud, in that case, what's possible is that by combining services from AWS and some Lucasite databases uh, or machine learning models from your own system, uh, you can do very interesting things. For example, uh, using AWS services, you can find high-level categories. So for example, you can uh, find out candidate face information, or maybe you can find out candidate uh, vehicles or candidate um, objects in the image, such as objects that uh, represent uh, animals, or they might represent tools, etc. And additional machine learning models that you're bringing in would process these candidate objects and then maybe add some of your own uh, additional insights about these objects. So, for example, when recognizing vehicles in images, 
uh, your custom machine learning model can recognize the details of that image and provide some additional information. For example, whether that vehicle was damaged or not. So there's a well-known example from the insurance industry uh, for machine learning where a machine learning model was developed to help recognize whether a particular vehicle uh, has sustained damages. In other words, was in a car accident uh, that is going to lead to a complete scrap of the vehicle, meaning that the owner of the vehicle would have to buy a new vehicle to replace it, or if the damage is such that it can be fixed in a, a, car, a car service shop. So combining these types of models together really creates value for the end customers because it allows company to use commodity services from public clouds, right, to do things like image recognition and then do secondary processing in those images to achieve higher results at predicting whether a particular image is actually uh, means, for example, whether a vehicle needs to be scrapped or if that image indicates that the uh, vehicle can be fixed. So you mentioned the controversies around uh, facial recognition, and certainly a lot has been talked about that uh, recently. And also much has been said about the potential bias that's been built into machine learning models uh, because of uh, many of our, um, I guess, uh, um, our human biases have been sort of leaked into the machine learning models. Uh, as a machine learning practitioner, can, is there something uh, that you can maybe you can talk about in terms of uh, how are we as industry, uh, what are we doing to tackle some of these uh, biases uh, going into our machine learning models? Great question. So machine learning models are driven by data. And unfortunately, the reality is that uh, if the data reflects real world biases, those biases can make their way into the machine learning model and consequently actually impact the real world uh, once the machine learning model goes into production. Uh, there are very well-known examples of biases uh, in the industry. Some of them have to do, for instance, with biases with mortgage approvals. So for example, some zip codes uh, have received unfair treatment uh, for processing by machine learning models that decide on mortgage applications. Uh, simply because the data itself has contained biases against particular zip codes. I think in the industry, the issue of um, identifying biases and working with biases is fairly well understood for structured data sets. So here, when I talk about the data sets that are organized into rows and columns, uh, these issues of identifying biases happen at the stages of working on data preparation and data quality. Uh, so the bias itself does not actually propagate into the machine learning model. However, with unstructured data sets, think image data, audio data, the issue of biases is uh, less well understood. And uh, as an industry, as practitioners, we still have, need, uh, have to do more work to improve how we deal with the biases in these kinds of data sets. So I think this is uh, uh, still an active area of research. And as practitioners, we need to be aware of these biases and advise our customers of the possibility of those biases and do our best to eliminate them. But uh, at the same time, we need to be aware of the fact that uh, we don't have a solution to this problem yet. 
Okay, thank you for uh, thank you for that. Um, I think that brings us to the end of all the questions that I've had. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to tell the listeners before we go? Uh, maybe tell us a bit more about your upcoming book with Manning and maybe Counterfactual is hiring as well? I'd love to. Uh, the book is currently available in the uh, subscription format. Uh, there's a new chapter that's coming out every few weeks. And uh, the book is expected to go in print at the uh, end of this year, beginning of the next year, 2021, uh, at the time of this podcast. Countfactual.ai is, uh, is not hiring at this point. Uh, we're actually uh, focused on helping our existing customers. Uh, but if you're interested in learning more about how to grow as a software engineer and uh, transition into a machine learning engineer role, or if you're an existing data scientist and you want to become a more impactful member of your team or of your organization, uh, definitely check out Serverless Machine Learning from Manning. Uh, the book will help you uh, become a more impactful and more uh, productive contributor to your to your team. Okay, great. And as I mentioned earlier, there are some voucher codes available in the show notes uh, for you to get 40% discount uh, off the book, the, which is uh, which hopefully should be available by Manning's uh, early access program by now. Uh, and also, you can get in touch with me. Uh, I've got three, uh, five free copies to give away as well. And uh, finally, how can people find you on the internet? Uh, the best way to find me is just type in my name, Carl Asipov, uh, into Google search. Uh, most of the information about me is going to come up. Uh, LinkedIn is, uh, is a great resource if you're interested in the details of my background. And uh, uh, you can also read more about my work with both machine learning and uh, clouds on cloudswithcarl.com, which is my blog. Great. And I'll put those on the show notes as well. Uh, once again, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your experiences with machine learning and with serverless. All right. Thank you so much, Yan. Take care. Okay, stay safe. Bye-bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.